Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. Does anyone do anything exciting for Australia Day? Awesome, great. Well, maybe this is it. Awesome. So, hey, um, we're in the, the, the last week of a series called Add the Movies. This is our fourth week. Uh, we've been looking at different movies and uh, kind of, I guess, are using the movies to discuss something about Christianity in doing so. Today's movie, before I tell you what it is, it is based on the 10th biggest grossing movie of all time, the number one animated grossing movie of all time. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Frozen and Frozen 2 is correct. Best I possibly can in 25 minutes is explain the message of Christianity as simply and as clearly as I possibly can. And I'm going to use a diagram I've used many, many, many times. In fact, I've got some of my ex-students here. So I work at Mueller College, which is a, a sister campus to Carmichael that we've got running here. And I've used this diagram many, many times, and my ex-students will pay me out for it. But this is a, a, a diagram that just clearly explains the message of Christianity. So if you're in the process of maybe exploring Christianity or you're trying to figure out what you really believe, hopefully this will be super helpful. If you're saying, hey, listen, I actually, I feel like I, I get Christianity, then hopefully it will be helpful for you as well because it will give you another way in which you can share your, your faith with other people. So to kick this off, I'm going to start with a diagram. Now, if you've been around um, Christianity or religion or any, any kind of thing like this for some time, people will typically tell you that you've got to be you know, good to go to heaven, you've got to do good things, you've got to earn your way. But, but as you begin to explore the message of Christianity, you will get told, if, you, if you've been in church for any longer than about five minutes, people will say, well, actually, that's not true. The Christianity is different to every other religion. Most religions teach you need to be good, you need to be righteous, you need to do good things. But actually, Christianity says you do not need to do good things in order to get to heaven. You do not need to do good things to get to God. But what tends to happen in church is they rephrase it. So church world, people might say something like this. You don't need to be good to get to heaven, but you better be faithful. You don't need to be good to get to heaven, but you better be consistent. You don't need to be good to get to heaven, but you better try your best. You don't need to be good to get to heaven, but you better climb really high. And what happens is, according to the stats... About 50% of people in church are trying to climb their way to God. Now, they would say, no, no, I'm not earning my way, but I need to be faithful. I need to be consistent. I need to try my best. I need to put God first. I need to love God. I need to love others. And if I can do these things enough, then maybe one day I'll get to the top of the ladder and God will accept me. Now, what they've done, they've done surveys all over the world in different churches, in different denominations, in different cultures, and over and over again, the stats come back and there's varying degrees of this, but about 50% of people, whether they've grown up in church or not, about 50% of people in church today believe they need to climb their way. Now, as a result of that, as you can imagine, some people are very good at climbing, they're very good at being consistent, they're very good at being disciplined, they're very good at being self-controlled, but then there's others who try to climb, and they're not as good. And they they slip and they fall, and then they try again, they slip and they fall, and they slip and they fall. Then eventually they're like, you know what? I'm just going to walk away. 
I'm tired of feeling guilt. I'm tired of feeling shame. I'm tired of feeling judged. I'm tired of feeling like I don't have what it takes. And maybe one of the reasons that perhaps yourself or some family members or friends that you know walked away from the church or walked away from Christianity or walked away from God was because they felt like they did not have what it takes. They felt guilt. They felt shame. They felt judged. They felt like maybe Christianity is a good thing. I've got nothing against Jesus. I've got nothing against um, other people having a faith, but I don't have what it takes and it's not for me. Now we see this illustrated actually in the movie Frozen. Check this out. With this power within her, and initially she can't control it, but then she learns to control it. They hide her away. They confine her. They keep her away from people so she can't hurt others. They give her the gloves to protect her. And as long as they can control it, as long as they can confine her, everything's fine. But then as soon as she begins to, you know, things are getting a bit out of control, things are not easy, easily contained, it flows out again. And all of a sudden we see this power flow out of her and she realises she's not doing a very good job of being disciplined and consistent. She's not able to climb and she feels guilt and shame and she runs away. The fact is we have many, many people in church who are trying to climb their way. Many, many people. And you might sit there and go, well, I've been in church all my life. I'm not one of those people. Obviously, this is just people who are kind of new to church. Actually, it's often the opposite. It's often people who've been in church for a very long time. John Wesley was a missionary before he was a Christian. Martin Luther was a priest before he was a a revolutionary church leader. The fact is, the more you care about Christianity, the more dangerous it is that you begin to think it's about what I can do. No, it's not about earning, but you'll reword it. But I've got to be faithful. I've got to be consistent. I've got to try my best. I've got to put God first. I could just love God enough. And then you'll climb your way there. There's others of us who, to be honest, even just walking into a church is frightening. I remember one guy coming to me, um, we were running a church at Redcliffe and um, I hadn't seen him for years and he came up to me and um, he he hadn't been to church for a very long time and before he came in, he he grabbed me before the service, he said, oh, can I just talk to you for a second? And I was pretty frantic, trying to organise everything, sometimes a bit stressful before church starts. I said, yeah, mate, I've got got about a minute, I can talk to you and then I'd love to catch up with you after the service. He he just said, listen, and I won't say exactly what he said because he went a bit, you know, the hardcore in the language, but he said, listen, is it possible that a messed up person like me would be able to come to church today? And I just remember thinking, of course you can come. Like, I'm messed up. We're all messed up. And I'm not a hugger. (laughs) I am not that kind of person. But I just hugged him and he just began to sob. And he came into church and he just realised that for him, the guilt and the shame, the, the inability of him to be able to climb had driven him away And many, many people walk away from God and they feel like they're walking away from Jesus, but actually they're walking away from the ladder. They're walking away from this idea that we've got to be consistent, we've got to be faithful, we've got to do something. Then there's a third group of people. The third group of people realise there must be another way. And rather than climb, rather than run away, they run to God's grace. And in that moment, they realise, I am not a good person. I am not morally upright. In fact, I'm a moral failure. I'm, a, I'm spiritually bankrupt. And rather than try to be more consistent, more faithful, to put God first, they simply declare, I am a sinner. And they run to Jesus and they fall at his feet and they say, Jesus, I am the sinner, save me. And to their surprise, Jesus picks them up and he forgives them of their sin and saves them. Now, when that happens, there's at least two things 
that we receive. There's actually lots, and I'd love to spend more time on this another time. But the first is, because of the cross, we receive eternal life. Because Jesus dies on the cross to pay for our sin, we are saved and receive eternal life. Again, we see this in the movie Frozen. Check it out. So we see this picture of someone sacrificing themselves to save someone else, not just in the movie Frozen, but in many, many movies. In fact, we see it all throughout um, many of the movies that are blockbuster hits in Hollywood all the time. What we need to recognise, though, is the greatest story in which we see this is in the message of Christianity and the message of Jesus. Now, here's the thing. We read in Christianity that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin, that because Jesus died on the cross, we can be forgiven. Who's heard that before? We've all heard that before. Even if you're not a Christian, you've heard that before. And whilst that sounds good, and whilst those of us who've been in church our whole life, we just kind of hear that and just nod and agree, it's a bit confusing. Let me see if I explain. Right? Uh, let's just take, um, can I just use Nadine? You're going to pick on her. You don't need to do anything. You just need to sit there and be a human being. Can you do that? Awesome. Now, Nadine and I have known each other for quite some time, and um, I, I actually work with Nadine, and I feel like we get along really well. To my knowledge, we've never had a fight or an argument, but let's say we were to have an argument one day, and I was in the wrong, and Nadine had to forgive me. And I said, look, Nadine, I'm sorry. I said the wrong thing. I was rude to you. I was, I, was, I, was, I was not thoughtful. I was unkind. I'm sorry. And she says, no worries, Mark. I can forgive you as long as one of my children dies. And you'd be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what? And she's like, yeah, I can forgive you if one of my children dies. And you'd be like, Nadine, I think I don't understand what's going on here. This is very strange. In fact, if you had a car or a van, you'd probably quietly escort Nadine into the van and maybe drive her down to a mental health institution and lock her up and keep her away from her children. Because no one's ever said to me, I can forgive you if one of my children dies. Yet Christianity seems to teach, this is the the, the confusing thing about it, we believe that God is the most loving, merciful, forgiving, kind person in the whole universe. That's what we teach. But at the same time, we believe or we teach that in order for God to forgive us, his only son has to die. Can you see why this is confusing? Let me see if I explain. Um, suppose after the service, uh, not this week because we're all going to head down uh, and grab um, sausages and, and, and raise money for the bushfire, but let's say next week after church, we all head to McDonald's and we hang out at McDonald's. We loved hanging out at the, the sausage sizzle. We thought, let's do it again, but next week's going to be McDonald's. And I walk into McDonald's and I say to the gentleman behind the counter, I'd like a Big Mac, thanks. And he says, um, no worries, it's probably $5 or whatever Big Mac is. And I say, no worries. I reach for my wallet and I've forgotten my wallet. What's he going to say? And I'm like, oh, look, mate, I'm really sorry. Um, look, I, I know I just asked for a Big Mac and I, I, just, I just forgot my wallet. And um, it's a bit embarrassing. But um, listen, I'm a faithful McDonald's customer. <laughs> I've consistently eaten McDonald's over many years. I've put McDonald's first over other fast food institutions. I've really prioritised McDonald's. I'm just wondering this one time, I know I've dropped the ball, do you think you could give me the Big Mac for free? He's like, no, no, I can't do that. I'm like, no, I know you can't do that, but maybe. 
I mean, you're going to throw something out at the end of the day. Look, seriously, I've, I've, I've always put you first. I've been faithful. I've been consistent. Just this one time, could you give me the Big Mac for free? And eventually, after some time, I convinced him. He's like, okay, here you go. Get out of here. I don't want to see you again. But thank you so much. The following week, we all decided to go to McDonald's again. And I walk up to the counter, and there's a gentleman behind the counter. It's the same gentleman as last time. I say, I'd like a Big Mac, thanks. And he's like, no worries, it's $5. I remember you from last time. I'm like, great. $5. I reached my wallet, forgot my wallet again. And I'm like, oh, mate, I'm so sorry. I know, I know. I just, I, just, I just forgot this wallet again. I'm just wondering, maybe this is one last time. Could you just give me the Big Mac? So I can't do that. I'm like, yeah, I know, I, 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 this will be the last time. I promise I'll never ask for this again. I promise. This is the last time, just this one time. Could you give me the Big Mac for free? And he's like, I can't do it. And I'm like, please. And he goes, okay, here it is. Get out of here. I'm like, thank you so much. Following week, we go to McDonald's again. Third week in a row. I go up to the counter. I ask for a Big Mac. He says $5. I reach my wallet. I forgot my wallet. What's he going to say? No way. He's going to say, I can't just keep doing this. You, I know you said you put me first, but you obviously don't. I know you said you're consistent, but you're obviously not consistent. I know you said you're faithful. You're not very faithful. I know you said you'd never do this again, but you are doing it again. I can't just keep doing this. Get out of here. But my good friend Pete over here, he knows I am completely useless when it comes to remembering things, and he knows I forget my wallet all the time. And he knows that I'm going to be heading to McDonald's, so he ducks off just after the service. He gets down there early. He says, listen, he walks into the manager's office. He said, listen, there's a man coming in here. His name's Mark. He will forget his wallet. Here is $1 million. He puts a million dollars on the manager's desk. And he says to the manager, give him whatever he asked for. I walk in. I ask for a Big Mac. The gentleman says, $5. I reach my wallet. I forgot my wallet. What's he going to say? He's going to ask, do you want fries with that? Isn't he, Right? Why? Now, this is the key. If you want to understand Christianity, this is it. Why? Because somebody paid. That's it. The reason I am forgiven is because somebody paid. You do not have to catch God in a good mood. You do not have to make up for your sin. You don't need to promise that you'll never do it again. You do not always have to have God first or always be faithful, always be consistent, although they're good things to do. The reason we get forgiven is because somebody paid. 2,000 years ago, Jesus hung on a cross and he declared, it is finished. He paid for our sin in full. My past sin, my present sin, my future sin, my accidental sin, my deliberate sin, all of it is paid for in full. Paul wrote to the church at Rome, and he wanted them to understand this incredible message of God's grace. And in the middle of Romans chapter 8, he declares, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. If you just turn me down a bit, John, that'd be great. There, are now no condemn there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. The fact is, when you put your faith in Jesus, when I put my faith in Jesus, when Jesus pays for our sin in full, all our past sin, present sin, future sin is cast upon him, and I get off scot-free because he is condemned we become uncondemnable. We are free of guilt. We are free of shame. We are free of condemnation. And that is why we keep banging on and on and on about Jesus. That is why we talk about Jesus. It's why we're obsessed with Jesus. That's why He is the center of everything we do. It's not just because we ought to. 
It's not just because He's God. It's because He's done something for us that is unbelievable. It's unthinkable and it means everything. The word gospel, which is the message of Christianity, means good news. But it's not just good news. It is the best news ever. It is the best thing I've ever heard. It is the only thing I've ever heard that's worth my life. It is the thing that we've given our life to. We are uncondemnable because he was condemned on our behalf. Um, John wrote, sorry, mate, can you just turn me down again? It's just super loud here. John wrote um, a biography of Jesus, and in that biography, Jesus says, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. They will not be judged, but it's already crossed over from death to life. You need to realize those of us who are in Jesus, those of us who put our faith in Jesus, have escaped judgment. There's not a day coming where God is going to determine, will you get in or will you not get in? That judgment has already been passed. God looks at what Jesus did for us on the cross and that was enough. It satisfies the entry requirement. We are not going to be judged. We've already passed from death to life. We are certain we can walk out the door today knowing for sure that we have eternal life. This is why we talk on and on about Jesus. Now, here's the question. If you're sitting there today saying, well, that's all great, but that sounds a lot like you could just do whatever you want. Well, yes, you can do whatever you want. Your life has no impact on where you spend eternity. What matters is what Jesus has done on our behalf. Is this making sense? Now, the question is this. Just because you can do whatever you want, do you think God has any kind of desire for us to love each other? Of course he does. Do you think God has any kind of desire for us to serve one another, to, to care for the poor, to care for refugees, to care about the environment, to, to, to look after people? to go out of our way to, to, to start churches and to build people up and to start schools and to educate people. God cares about all those things. So how does God right, get us to do those things if climbing our way doesn't work and the cross is paid for our sin and fall so we don't have to do good works? How does he get us to do good works if we don't have to? Well, before I give the answer, check out this video. on the outside that eventually is going to take over her life. And the Bible teaches that the, the, we have a similar problem. We have a sinful heart. We have a heart that, if we're honest, that loves sin and craves sin. You don't have to teach children to be selfish. They figure that out all of their own. No one ever sits down and says, okay, son, this is how you disrespect your mother. This is how you disrespect your teacher. Kids, figure it out. It's in us. It's in me. It's in you. And the only way to thaw a frozen heart is an act of true love. The Bible teaches that for that, for us, for those of us who are understanding Christianity, it's not more commands. It's not be good, be holy. God had told his people, the Israelites, be good, be holy, be righteous, be pure. Don't do this, do do this, don't do this, do do this. For years and years and years. And it was a complete disaster. The history of the Israelite people is one full of sin. It's full of shocking sin. If you want to know whether or not the commands ever change someone, just look at the history of God's people. The commands can't change. In fact, if we just go back, Romans 7 
says this. Paul writes to the church at Rome. He says this. I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. In other words, what Paul is saying is, when the command came, it exposed my sin. And in fact, he goes on to say, the very commandment I thought that was going to bring life actually brought death. You would think that if we just said, be good, be holy, be righteous, that people would become good, holy, and righteous. But actually, it just exposes their sin. It makes people realize they can't climb the ladder. And Paul goes on to say, In order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good, which is God's commands, to bring about my death, so that through the commandments, sin might become utterly sinful. If the commands won't help us, how does God thaw out our frozen heart? How does he give us new life? Well, the Bible teaches that there's something else. And it's not more commands. It's not more rules. It's not more regulations. But it is the Holy Spirit who comes into our life to give us a new life. Let me see if I explain. Has anyone here seen a movie where someone gets demon-possessed? You're probably not meant to admit that in church, but okay, I'm saying it. Me and Pete have seen them. Okay, right. In these movies, when someone gets demon-possessed, the demon comes into the person and there's there's a wrestle going on. There's a tug of war going on between the demon and the person for control. So sometimes the person has control and they resist the demon, but sometimes the demon gets control and they do evil things. Now the Bible teaches when a person becomes a Christian, this is good news, you don't get demon-possessed. That's very good news, right? But in a sense, you get Holy Spirit-possessed. The Holy Spirit comes in, God, the third person of the Trinity, comes in and begins to wrestle against our sinful nature. So that... If you look at any Christian's life, if I look at Nadine's life, who I've already picked on today, but I'll pick on again. If I look at Nadine's life, she's a Christian. Because she has the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is working in her life to produce love, to make her more kind, more patient, more forgiving. But at the same time, she also has a sinful nature that unfortunately loves sin and craves sin. So whilst you might look at a Christian and go, well, if they were really a Christian, they would never do this. They were really a Christian, they'd never do that. That's not true. Christians still have a sinful nature and they can do all sorts of crazy, in fact, sometimes evil, sinful things. But if they are a Christian, they do have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit begins to work in them and through them. So whilst, unfortunately, you'll see the activity of their sinful nature, you will also see the activity of the Holy Spirit. And one of the ways we know someone is a Christian is because you see the activity of the Holy Spirit in their life. Paul wrote to the church at Rome, he said, uh, to the church at Galatians, and he said, um, the fruit of the Spirit or the product or the, the result of the Spirit living in us is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. He wrote to the church at Corinth and he said, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. Another way to think about this is to imagine a plan of a house. Now, this isn't probably a very good house. If you're going to build a house, I don't recommend me being your architect. Okay, so here's the hallway and here's the rooms. 
And in this house, if this house represents my life, the different rooms would represent the different part of my life. So I might have money, work, family, uh, friends, uh, fun, church, etc. And when a person becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit, in a sense, comes into their life or into their house and his job is to renovate their life or renovate the different rooms of their heart. So that hopefully, as God begins to transform me from the inside out and begins to work on how I deal with money, that he would begin to give me a peace and a contentment to be grateful for what I've been given rather than envious and jealous for what I do not have that he would give me this incredible spirit of generosity because God has freely given to me. I can't help but want to give freely give, uh, to freely give to others. God begins to renovate the different parts of my life to make me more like Jesus. Now, if you go through the different rooms in my house as a Christian, you will find that some rooms need more renovation than others. Wouldn't you agree? And in fact, this is a bit, probably shouldn't admit this in church, but I'm going to be honest. If I'm honest, there are some rooms, you would agree with this, where I'm more willing for God to renovate than others. Some rooms, I'm like, God, come in here. This is a mess, please. Right? Please, God, come and help me with this. There'd be other rooms where I'm like, God, maybe just not right now. I'm kind of standing behind the door and there's a battle going on. The Bible talks about what's called the battle between the spirit and the sinful nature. There's a war waging within our hearts. And there's a battle, there's a tug of war going on. So here's the go. And this is it and I'm done. A Christian is not someone who has every room perfectly renovated. A Christian is not someone who necessarily even is willing for every room to be equally renovated. What makes someone a Christian? Well, let me ask you one question and then we're done. Who owns the house? Who owns the house? Is this my house where God is an invited guest? I'm like, hey, God, come over for, for lunch and we'll have a bit of a chat. And while you're here, hey, if you could just mess with this a bit and fix this and sort this out, that'd be great. But then on your way? Or does God own the house? Five times when the New Testament is describing Christians, five times it says you belong to God, you belong to God, you belong to God, you belong to God, you belong to God. The Bible says, for those of us who are Christians, we are no longer our own and we have been bought at a price. What makes someone a Christian is not that their life is perfect, not that their life is perfectly renovated, not that they don't ever sin again because they're continually going to struggle with sin. Unfortunately, I'm not saying that's a good thing. It's unfortunate, but it's reality. What makes someone a Christian is that they've realized they cannot climb the ladder. They're sick and tired of trying to climb They're sick and tired of walking away. They've run to Jesus. They've fallen at his feet and they've cried out for mercy. In that moment, they've had their sins forgiven and they've handed over the keys of their life to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit takes ownership of their life, comes into their life and begins to transform them from the inside out. That's it. So what I want to do today is this. I just think it would be great if all of us, there's no pressure for this, But if you're unsure, if there's anything in you that's unsure about where you will spend eternity, about how God feels about you, whether you accept it, I just think it would be great. Before we go to lunch, 
if all of us could walk out those doors today knowing 100% for sure that we are loved, that we're accepted, that we're forgiven, and that the God of the universe is living inside us and exploding inside our hearts and has a place for us in eternity. So I'm just going to ask every single person to uh, bow their heads and close their eyes. If we just do that now, that would be fantastic. And if you're saying today, look, that's me. I want to be sure. I want to know for sure that there's a place for me in heaven. I want to know for sure I'm forgiven. I want to know for sure that the God of the universe lives inside my heart. If that's you, could you simply put your hand up right now and say, Jesus, have mercy on me. Just put your hand up in your heart. This is your opportunity. Yeah, that's great. Just keep putting your hand up. This is your moment. This is the moment God saves. So right now, Jesus, we declare that we need a saviour. The commands are good. The commands show us what you want, but we cannot obey them. We're unable to obey. So Jesus, we need a saviour. We declare our need for you in this moment, Jesus. Would you pay for our sin in full? We believe you died on the cross for us. We believe that you rose from the dead. And would you give us your spirit, Jesus, come into our life, take ownership of our life and make us the people you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus, that you came for sinners, not to condemn, but to save. Thank you so much, Jesus. Amen.